Well, it is a pleasure to once again uh, come and open God's Word with you, and we'll be wrapping up our series um, on the topic of death as gain. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and I want to begin this morning by reading verses 12 through 26. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. This is to round out our series. This is what it says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be put to shame, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this... I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. If you were to find yourself imprisoned for preaching the gospel and your captors gave you permission to write a letter home, what would that letter sound like? If they handed you a pen, some paper, and even an envelope, what would that uh, opportune correspondence sound like? What would be the underlying theme or the overarching concern of that correspondence? If I'm honest, if it were me, I'd probably be issuing my family with a pretty exhaustive to-do list, right? Dear Alice, sell the house and use the funds to employ the services of Harvey Specter or some other top dog QC barrister. I want to get out of here. Then I want you to hire some thugs or some ex-military vigilantes and plan a prison break. Start a protest for my release out the front of Parliament House. Tell the church to fast and not eat a single thing until the day of my release. Oh, and in the meantime, can you bring me my memory foam pillow, a good book, and a rock hammer in case the prison break fails and I need to, you know, dig my way out like Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption. That's probably what my correspondence would sound like, if I'm honest. But the Apostle Paul, not at all. He's far more composed than me. You see, deeply embedded in the Apostle Paul's theology is a robust confidence in God's sovereign choreography of all that transpires in his life. You see, Paul was undoubtedly a key figure in the growth of the early church, probably the key figure. And he was especially dear to the church in Philippi because Paul was the one who actually founded that church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. 
But now their cherished apostle, the man who led them to the Lord and planted their church, is in prison. And it doesn't look like this is going to be a brief overnight stay that he'd encountered previously, but this imprisonment is looking like it could be part of Paul's final countdown before a subsequent execution. And as I'm sure you can imagine, the church in Philippi was deeply discouraged. Now, through a pragmatic lens, I think their discouragement makes perfect sense, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the church has just had their best player sidelined. And so it kind of makes sense to ask the question, well, what do we do now? (laughs) How do we replace someone of that caliber? But what Paul does next is nothing shy of extraordinary. He doesn't adopt their spirit of discouragement and think, oh, yep, you know what, you're totally right, I am the key player. Yep, this can't go on without me. Cancel the Great Commission. We've got no hope now. Do we hear that from Paul? No. No, Paul responds to this discouraged and disheartened church with the challenging words there in verses 12 through 14. He says, hey, listen, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, not hinder it, advance it, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. No matter what industry you work in, I'm sure you've had at least some exposure to the concept of key performance indicators, or KPIs as they're often referred to. Uh, But I'm sure many of you know you have to be careful not only which KPIs you choose to adopt in your analysis, but how exactly are you going to analyse the data. Uh, Many years ago, I worked in retail. And uh, often a day would begin by going through, okay, what what was our daily sales target? I mean, How many items did we want customers to be walking away with? What percentage of people who walked into the store actually purchased something and who was browsing? These are the kinds of things that you look at if you're working in the retail industry. And often these kind of um, data indicators are basically um, analysed every hour or so so that someone might, say, check the total sales data at 11am, two hours into trade. I think, oh, goodness me, we're behind on our total sales. This is a disaster. We mustn't be serving our customers well. But if you don't just look at that data in isolation and you look at some of the accompanying data, you might realise that you only had 10 customers in the store for the first two hours of trade, and it turns out that 9 out of 10 have walked away with three items each. You're actually doing really well with your customer service. You just haven't had a lot of foot traffic on that particular day. So you have to be careful with which key performance indicators you're utilising. When I played Aussie Rules football, the coaching team would also keep stats on how we were performing as a team. How many times did we get the ball inside our forward 50? How often were we winning the clearances? Were we leading the tackle count? Uh, We also had a stat we called damage control, uh, which is basically to analyse how well were we restricting the opposition's best player. And again, someone may have checked the tackle count quite naively at half-time and thought, oh, boys, we're killing it. We're leading the tackle count by 15. This is unreal. But if they checked the scoreboard, the reason we were leading the tackle count is because we couldn't get our hands on the ball. We were chasing tail all day and getting flogged. You see, KPIs can be really misleading. We need to be really careful which KPIs we use to determine the health and success of our lives. They can be really misleading. And in verse 12, Paul introduces a KPI that probably doesn't get taken into consideration often enough by us Christians in the West. 
It's the KPI of gospel advancement. You see, even though Paul is in prison, probably shackled to at least one Roman soldier, Paul is satisfied with the status quo. Paradoxically, he's even rejoicing in it because he's evaluating his life not on the scales of health, wealth and prosperity, but on the scales of gospel advancement. Paul may be bound, but the word of God is not. The gospel is advancing. And so straight off the bat, there is a piercing question we need to ask ourselves this morning. How often do we weigh our lives on the scales of gospel advancement? If you weighed your life on the scales of gospel advancement this morning, how much would you weigh? For some of us, um, perhaps we'd come up as underweight or even anorexic. And then perhaps for others, sadly, the scales may not register anything at all. But you see, for Paul, this seems to be the only KPI that he even keeps tabs on. And when he jumps on the scales, the needle spins off the chart because he is kicking his gospel goals in three different ways. Take a look. Firstly, his imprisonment is inspiring others to be bolder in their proclamation of the gospel. And it's, it's advancing as well as it ever has. This is the sort of thing that happens in sport, right? The opposition throws a rogue elbow at your captain. What happens? You rally together, you play tougher and harder, and you end up winning the game most of the time. I've quoted it before, but Tertullian really did say it best. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow, the blood of Christians is seed. That's what's happening in response to Paul's imprisonment. But then secondly, as you read verses 15 through 18, you'll note that there's even some Christians who are opponents of Paul, who are ridiculing him for his imprisonment and preaching from a spirit of selfish ambition. Right Now, we don't know exactly uh, who these opponents were. Perhaps uh, their doctrine of suffering is still in adolescence and they didn't really have a category uh, for an apostle in prison. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe they see Paul's imprisonment as a chance to get into the so-called ministry spotlight for themselves, whatever that even is. But in Paul's assessment, I mean, although these opponents are troubling him and they are a little bit theologically naive, it seems, God is still working through them in spite of their flaws and they're still preaching the ABCs of the gospel faithfully. I'm pretty encouraged by that personally, that God can use some pretty crooked sticks to advance the gospel. Paul's rejoicing in this. But then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Paul recognises that his imprisonment is not just an inspiration to others, it is a deliberate, God-appointed, behind-enemy-lines assignment that will enable the gospel to infiltrate into the lives of his Roman captors. That's how he views it. The gospel isn't just advancing in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but precisely because of it. Think about it for a moment. If, if you're a first-century Roman soldier... You've probably handled a few prisoners in your time, right? You'd be pretty well acquainted with how a prisoner would typically behave and could probably tell a few horrible stories. I'm sure there's some police officers in the room that will testify to this reality. But then suddenly someone like Paul rocks up in prison. Do you think it's possible he might stand out as a rose amongst the thorns? I think so. You see, Paul and his Christian comrades were often accused of being insurrectionists that were against the emperor and the state. But after observing Paul in close 
proximity, the entire imperial guard, that is the elite military unit that was commissioned to look after the emperor, these guys, even they could see that this man, by his posture and his proclamation, was not in chains because he was an enemy of the state. He's in chains because of his devotion to Christ. This was a behind-enemy-lines assignment, tailored for Paul. I mean, I kind of wonder, what would it have been like for those soldiers to arrest other Christians in the future? Having spent some time with Paul, do you think they may have felt just a little bit conflicted? I think so. I mean, what would the chat have been like in the Imperial Guard lunchroom? (laughs) Mate, I just got off the weirdest shift. I've been chained to that Paul character all night. Jesus is a nice bloke, but he doesn't shut up about that Jesus fella, does he? I mean, he acknowledges that we crucified him in all, but he continues to claim that he rose from the dead. Mate, if you ever get on a, a shift with him and you're chained to him, let me know what you think. And apparently these Roman soldiers had Australian accents, but you get the point. I imagine that there would have been some chat amongst the soldiers. This guy's a bit different. Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So let me ask you this morning, what's happened to you? Listen, I most certainly have a category for Christians needing to tap out of their ministry for a season, whether it's because of burnout or some significant personal or family suffering. I get it. At the end of the day, we're all soldiers in Christ's army, but like any good army, the local church should always have a medical bay for injured soldiers. And we're pretty lucky that at the project we have some very capable physicians. Furthermore, the Bible is voluminously footnoted with complexities and nuances and even the mystery of human suffering. And so when it comes to counselling people when they're suffering, it takes wisdom and tact. You can't just throw a band-aid on it. These things are normally far too complex. But having qualified all that... Far too often, we fail to recognise that our suffering has been sovereignly orchestrated, even specifically designed, so that the gospel can advance, not in spite of our suffering, but precisely because of it. Pick up any book on church history or the persecuted church, and it will testify to this reality. But let me share personally for a moment. Between about... 2016, 2018, roughly, I was in a bit of a tricky spot. My back health was not great and was deteriorating at different points. I had a lot of debt from a failed business venture. I probably lost in excess of $40,000. I was only making minimum wage and having to liquidate assets to pay off that debt. I would often get to the end of a fortnight, two days out from payday, and be like, okay, Lord, let's make this $10 last. Thank you, Lord, for another can of tuna. That was, that was life for me for a long time. Most of my life, my primary form of recreation was going to the gym and playing sport. And that was becoming increasingly difficult to do. And I was honestly quite bored a lot of the time. But by God's grace, I can honestly testify to the reality that those years were the most fruitful years of my life with respect to gospel advancement. I couldn't go to the gym, I mean, because my back was often sore or my foot went numb mid-exercise, but it turns out I had to spend a lot of time resting at home, and in that time, I just so happened to be reading a bit of theology. I started running a community group. I ended up doing some Bible college, which is something I used to pity people for doing, but I actually started enjoying it myself. 
I was doing some university evangelism and all that to say my life had to adapt to this suffering and the result was that if you weighed my life on the scales of gospel advancement, I was heavier than I'd ever been. I'd probably lost 10 kilos of muscle, but the other scales were tipping over. By God's grace, I, I got to do more evangelism and disciple making than I'd ever done in my life. And it's led me to the quote-unquote profession that I'm doing now. So what's happened to you? And has it served to advance the gospel? I'm a pretty devout St Kilda supporter. Um, Wayne Davis said amen, wherever you are. And there was a fellow who used to play for St Kilda about a decade ago. His name's Luke Ball. Pretty handy footballer. I was pretty gutted when he moved to Collingwood. I'm sure you were happy about it, but... He wasn't like greatest of all time, good, but pretty handy. But probably the thing that stood out about this guy was probably one of the tougher footballers getting around. You wouldn't mess with Luke Ball in a hard ball get. So much so that sometimes the commentators would nick, nickname him Mr. Elastoplast, right? Because he would often go in so hard for the ball, he'd bump his head and cut himself and have to spend some time on the bench getting bandaged up like an Egyptian mummy and then go back out and continue playing. Luke Ball was often covered in Elastoplast tape. And I often look at that imagery as I watch football, and I think there's a lesson to be learnt there. As Christians, we need to learn how to be sore and yet keep playing. And you might say, Jaden, that's, that's really hard. And you'd be right to say that. It is hard. Paul is not pulling any punches with respect to the difficulty of the situation that he finds himself in. He's in a Roman prison. But be of good cheer, in the verses that follows, Paul shows us two things that enabled him to live the way that he did. Firstly, and I'll only be brief here, he relies on the help of the Spirit and on the the prayers of the church. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is expressing his confidence in something that he describes there in verse 19 as his deliverance. Now, it's tempting to think that Paul is describing or or expressing the certainty uh, that he'll be released from prison, as though the Holy Spirit gave him a word of knowledge or something that he would be subsequently released from prison. Now, it's possible that there may be a hint of that. It's debated among scholars, I and mean, ultimately it depends on which imprisonment you're saying that Paul is currently suffering. Paul had a handful of sufferings uh, throughout his lifetime, and so it's debated whether or not this current imprisonment was followed by a release. Now, I wouldn't go to the stake for it, but I'd lean in the direction of saying that this was his first Roman imprisonment and that he was released before undergoing a second uh, Roman imprisonment. But that really isn't the point. Because the language he's using here is not release me from incarceration language. This is salvation language. The language of not being put to shame, that is textbook Old Testament speak for not being ashamed before Almighty God on the Day of Judgment. It's the sort of language that gets picked up in the New Testament in places like 1 John 2, 28. It should be on screen. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Paul is confident he will not be put to shame on that day. 
He's confident that no matter what happens to him, whether he survives this current episode and lives, or whether he is marched to his death, he will have no concerns facing God Almighty because the same God who justified him because of the finished work of Jesus is the same God who will ensure that he perseveres to the end. I like to say Paul knows he's going to the dance. But at the same time, he highlights the reality that although God is the one who will bring us to completion, Philippians 1.6, the means that God employs to bring about this end is none other than the prayers of the church. I mean, don't you dare look at the persecuted church or your fellow believer who is suffering and adopt some sort of retarded, hyper-Calvinistic view that says, oh well, God's sovereign, he'll bring them through. That's fatalism. That is not Christianity. Pray that they would make it through. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help them to endure to the end. Pray that, if necessary, our brothers and sisters abroad would be given the courage to die a martyr's death. Pray for them. We're not fatalists. We're Christians. I'm encouraged that in Dave and Emmy's community group, they do this every week. They pick a nation that's currently persecuted and pray for them as a group. That's awesome. And it's not wasted airtime towards God. Those prayers are the means that he employs to see us persevere to the end. Commenting on our passage today, Charles Spurgeon said these words. He said he looked for the transformation of the evil into good by that sacred alchemy of heaven, which can transmute the basest metal into purest gold. But he did not expect this to happen apart from the ordained methods and ordinary institutions of grace. He counted upon the result because he saw two great agents at work, namely prayer and the supply of the Spirit. Whoever else may be foolish enough to look for effects apart from causes, the apostle was not of their mind. So the first thing Paul shows us is that he was able to live the way that he did because he relied upon the Holy Spirit and the prayers of his fellow Christians. But secondly, Paul was able to live the way he did because he played host to an otherworldly interpretive grid. Look at verses 21 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Did you hear that? Did, did you hear verse 21? It's only short, but that thing is nuclear. It completely levels us and shatters all of our interpretive grids to pieces. What, what kind of otherworldly perspective is this? Let's just look at the second half of it for a moment. He says, to die is gain. That statement is not reflective of the cultural air that you and I breathe in the 21st century, right? For us, death is a taboo subject. We don't talk about it. One sociologist described this phenomenon as the pornography of death. We don't talk about it, we hide it from our kids, and we pretend that it doesn't happen. We've institutionalised death. Why? Why? Because death is the ultimate interruption to our autonomy, our identity, and our purpose. 
And so we subsequently spend the rest of our lives revolting against death like it won't happen. In his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough put it this way. He says, What we gain from work is stress, vexation and sleepless nights. Why? We want our lives to make a mark. We want to accomplish things that matter. We want to do something that will last. We keep running, keep pressing like hamsters on the wheel, stressed out to no good end, because nothing we do can change the fact that we will die and eventually the best we accomplish will collapse like an elaborate sandcastle in the rising tide. Or as Julian Bardens puts it, our best, at best our work is like graffiti on the cell wall of the condemned prisoner. We're etching into the stones, I was here. But even if our work survives for a time in someone's memory, I was here is just another way of saying, I'm not here now. Hebrews 2 describes the fear of death as lifelong slavery. It's the same idea. But Paul can say, to die is gain. It's a favourable outcome. In fact, in terms of his own personal interests, it's an immensely superior outcome. Outcome. He knows that death won't crush his identity, but it will satisfy his long-held desire to be with Christ. No more shipwrecks, no more synagogue floggings, no more waging war on sin, no more writing letters to wayward congregations, no. But an eternity, unrestrained closeness with Christ. That's what he's longing for. It is far better, he says. Project Church, do you have that longing? Do you know... That if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then death is a glorious outcome. Glorious outcome. It trumps any satisfaction, any joy that you may currently be experiencing here on earth, bazillionfold. When a Christian dies, although, although their body is buried in the ground or cremated, their soul goes immediately into the presence of God. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. It's what theologians call the intermediate state. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is a glorious outcome. Now, they still await the resurrection of their bodies at the second coming, but they are in a state that is immensely more glorious than anything we have here. But then pair that with the first half of verse 21. To live... Is Christ. I mean, in isolation, it'd be tricky to know exactly what Paul means, but I think verse 22 teases it out a bit for us. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. When you boil it down, Paul, Paul is effectively saying that if I die, I get more of Jesus. But if I live, the people that I minister to get more of Jesus. In effect, Paul is saying that whether he lives or he dies, the sole purpose of his existence is bound up with the idea of people getting more of Jesus. That's how he lives. Can we really say that we live like that? Honestly. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Man, we, we don't have the right to throw that around as a cheap Christian catchphrase. I mean, it's almost a tragedy. How familiar we are with verse 21 because it becomes over-familiar and trivial with time. We really need to pause and hear what Paul is saying here. Listen, in in terms of literary genre, this is not the verse-by-verse theological mastery that we find in the book of Romans. Okay, What we have here is the kind of thinking-out-loud musing that Alice and I do over a dessert menu. 
Okay, that's what we have here. Oh, what do you reckon, Alice? Like that pavlova sounds amazing, but oh, you know I'm a sucker for black forest cake. What shall we choose? Let's get both. Uh, we do this most weekends. Last weekend, tiramisu got the call up, but but that's what Paul's doing here. This is not Romans. He's saying he's hard-pressed between the two. Someone's going to get more of Jesus. I just haven't decided who it will be yet. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Philippians, which is very helpful for me this week, he highlights something from the emblem of the American Baptist Foreign Missionary Society, which I believe is today called International Ministries, if my Google search is correct. Here's a brief extract from that commentary. It says, The emblem of the American Baptist Foreign Missionary Society is an ox standing between a plough and an altar with the motto, ready for either. (laughs) Ready to spend and be spent in labour or to be a sacrifice, whichever the Lord pleases. How good is that? Now, as this um, brief extract highlights, we need to remember that this outcome wasn't up to Paul. Paul isn't, just to be clear, he's not contemplating suicide here in prison. The outcome was not up to Paul. That's far too high above his pay grade. Indeed, he's having this thought experiment out loud and we are the beneficiaries of getting to hear his heartbeat, but the outcome would ultimately be determined by the sovereign purposes of Almighty God. But having cleared that up, within the scope of this thought experiment that he's having out loud, look what he concludes there in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's his conclusion after this thought experiment. Paul contemplates the idea of hanging up the boots and settling into a cushy retirement in the intermediate state. But he looks at the needs of of those who he's ministering to and he says, I'll go around another season. I know it's hard and that it probably means more suffering, but I'm going to get my shoulders strapped and get back out on the paddock. That's what he has concluded. We've got work to do. The harvest is plentiful and the labourers are few, so we can't spare any labourers. Put me in, coach. I want to go around again. You see, Paul doesn't want to be like the elves in The Lord of the Rings that start boarding ships to leave Middle Earth when the fighting's still going on. It's frustrating to watch, right? Pick up your bow and arrow and go kill some orcs. There's work to be done. Paul doesn't want to get on the boat too early like the elves on Lord of the Rings. You see, Paul is ready to embrace a life of self-sacrifice and delayed gratification for the sake of others. Other than Easter, is there a more perfect day than Anzac Day to, to discuss this concept? I don't think so. You see, with respect to their own personal interests, it would have been far better, far easier for the Anzacs to stay at home. But for the safety, security, freedom and well-being of our nation, for generations to come, they chose to go to war. The spirit of the Anzacs is something we could adopt in Western Christianity, right? This is a theme that comes out over and over again in the writings of Paul, perhaps most potently in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. Some of the lyrics in the song are from this verse that we sung earlier. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus to live as Christ. 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What a punchy finish. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Delayed gratification. Project Church, can you honestly say with Paul that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain? Is there any fruitful labour that you've been called to that you're not currently living out? To use Jesus' words, are you carrying your cross? Are you living in such a way as to die to self for the sake of others? And do you perceive death as a friend or a foe? In today's sermon, we've been looking at Philippians chapter 1, but after chapter 1 comes chapter 2. And it's in chapter 2 that we actually find the ultimate motivation and the ultimate example, Christ himself. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where can we look not only for our salvation, but for our motivation to live the life that Paul is describing? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.